Hi, this is Kalia Colston. And I'm Dylan Bird. And this is the podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast. And if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website. In Victoria and in New South Wales, the anti-corruption watchdogs are busy. Uh, IBAC in Victoria, the independent broadband-based anti-corruption commission, um, it's investigating the Labor Party on branch stacking. And ICAC in New South Wales, the independent commission against corruption, today starts its inquiry into former Premier Gladys Berejiklian and Jeff Sparrow, who's a former as well. He's a former breakfaster, uh, breakfaster here, um, columnist and a senior lecturer in journalism at the University of Melbourne is with us to talk about this and and also um, to reflect on calls for a federal equivalent to ICAC. Good morning, Jeff. Good morning. How's the dynamic duo today? Yeah, going Doing great. Well. Pretty, yeah, pretty dynamic. Um, Dylan, not maybe a, more so than me, although we haven't done that kind of um, weighing up yet. Always <laughs> dynamic in here, Jeff. You know how it goes. <laughs> Neither of you under investigation for corruption? <laughs> no, not yet. Um, <laughs> but if we were, then we, the first thing we'd do is try and undermine the um, agency trying to investigate us. But, I, I mean, look, let's start in Sydney because I... We wouldn't get you on either, Jeff. I don't think if we were being investigated for corruption, he's the last person we talked to. Well, exactly. <laughs> um, but ICAC, you know, was, was um, I guess... Uh, people were saying it brought down another premier, and their um, with their inquiry into Gladys Berejiklian, and you know people with loud voices have have said that um, ICAC is you know looking at, at a politician of integrity, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, I mean, what's your read on on the conduct of the corruption watchdog in that situation, Jeff? It's pretty extraordinary times, isn't it? As you said in your intro, we have um, two parallel commissions. Um, making uh, quite extraordinary investigations in both New South Wales and in Victoria. And what's really striking is the federal government has been responding as these politicians are somehow being unfairly persecuted. You remember, of course, that Scott Morrison promised to introduce a federal integrity commission back in December 2018. This has been been an ongoing call in federal politics that there needs to be some kind of equivalent of these state-based commissions. And Morrison said that he was going to introduce one. And when he was... um, There was an attempt to hold him to account about this in 2020 and then at at that time he responded well the reason why he hadn't done it was because these things were tremendously complex and you know you had to take your time to to get it right besides there was COVID which meant that an integrity commission wouldn't be able to hold uh, meetings in person you know if something like Zoom didn't exist and finally then he suggested that because of the pandemic uh commission would be a kind of waste of time and it would pull uh, public servants away from the important things that they needed to do fighting COVID. So three reasons then as to why we couldn't have a federal uh, integrity commission. But since Berejiklian's resignation, the new line coming from the Liberal Party and Morrison in particular is, as you say, that ICAC wields too much power and is thus unfair. And Morrison went on Sunrise where he explained you've got to have processes that assume people are innocent before they are thought to be guilty, which was his line on ICAC. And it's kind of extraordinary. So 
Let's talk first about what happened in ICAC, because as you say, there's a narrative that Jicklin is being unfairly punished because of her personal life. And it's kind of bizarre, isn't it? Here is this woman who's one of the most powerful politicians, well, the most powerful politician in the wealthiest state of Australia, someone who's paid upwards of $400,000 a year, a, a tremendously competent, powerful person. And this, this notion that we should treat her as a sort of ditzy high schooler who's somehow caught up in a personal crush is just bizarre. Um, yeah. So, so, so to go into what 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 happened, just to sort of background people who have, if you haven't been following in this New South Wales politics closely, ICAC had previously revealed that Berejiklian was in a secret relationship with a disgraced former Liberal MP for Wagga Wagga, Daryl Maguire. Okay, that's nobody else's business about theirs, right? You know, politicians can have affairs or with whoever they want, except that Maguire had previously been forced to quit Parliament after a separate inquiry had exposed his efforts to broke of property deals that he intended to make money from. Then ICAC started investigating his career as an MP and it heard evidence that he had sought to, quote, grease the wheels of a land sale involving the racing personality Louise Waterhouse, a deal that he stood to make $690,000 commission. And ICAC then revealed that it had phone taps of Maguire telling Berejiklian that he was going to make all his money if the land owned by Waterhouse was favourably rezoned. And she responded as saying, I don't need to know about that bit. So these are fairly serious allegations. ICAC investigating, I think in total, the corrupt allocation of something like $35 million in taxpayers' money. And it's looking at whether Berejiklian, uh, as Treasurer, allowed or encouraged Maguire's alleged corrupt conduct. Now, these are serious allegations, but it's also worth pointing out she didn't have to resign from Parliament. There was no imperative that she did that. In fact, um, it, there was probably some expectation that she resigned as Premier while the investigation was being conducted. But it was perfectly uh, possible for her to remain in Parliament and then had, she, had there been no charges laid, she could have taken back her old job. It was her decision to resign as 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 Premier for her own reasons. So this, this notion that she was somehow unfairly persecuted and driven out of the job is just bizarre. Yeah, and it's worth saying too that when those uh, you know, initial secret recordings emerged early on that were, you know, if nothing else, a, a really bad look, she of course weathered that storm and, and didn't stand down at that point. It's only when there was this sort of formal investigation in, into her role in this uh, and that she then, as you say, voluntarily decided to stand aside. Together with some of the, the political discourse around this and, you know, politicians getting out there and saying that, um, you know, ICAC is, is presuming people to be guilty when they've, you know, got a right to, to go through the process and, and that sort of thing. Also, some of the media commentary has, uh, you know, been sympathetic to, to Berejiklian and uh, sort of worried, I suppose, about ICAC, almost depicting it as some sort of shadowy force behind the scenes that continues to, to topple uh, leaders of, of the New South Wales um, uh, government at the time. What do you make
critique of, of how the public kind of observes some of, of, of these goings on, both in, in ICAC and New South Wales, but also in terms of what kinds of revelations have come out in Victoria as part of the IBAC investigation into branch stacking and, and the use of public funds um, as part of that process? I mean, it it does my head in to have a situation where repeatedly politicians, both in New South Wales and Victoria, have resigned because of these investigations, and then to have people in politics or the media saying, because so many politicians are resigning, therefore these commissions are doing a bad job. (laughs) (laughs) Like, we need fewer investigations and then less people would be resigning. But, I mean, I guess the, the... what particularly jumps out of me is this suggestion that um, politicians are being treated unfairly because they're being presumed uh, uh, guilty rather than innocent. It's such an extraordinary claim precisely because that's what politicians do to other people all the time. And, in fact, it's one of the real um, tendencies that we've seen in in recent years that increasingly people in the political class are introducing various schemes that treat ordinary people as if they are criminals when they haven't been charged with anything. And you can think of all number of examples, but the one that really sticks in my core is the robo-debt scheme where you had, you know, between, what, 2015 and 2019, you had this program which was unlawful and was deemed to be unlawful that raised $1.76 billion of debt against some of the most vulnerable people in the country by algorithm. And those people were presumed to be guilty of overpayment and were pursued in many cases by debt collectors. And the most horrific stories came out of that in terms of people taking their own lives and being driven into absolute despair. But this was quite literally a system in which you were presumed guilty by a computer and that was deemed legitimate and yet here we have a situation where all politicians are asked to do is answer some questions about conduct that on face value looks extremely on the nose and we're being told that this is this tremendous imposition on their rights and we should feel tremendously sorry for them um I I just think that we're in a situation now where it's it's much, much easier for many people in the media and public life to identify with the powerful than it is for the powerless. It's assumed that it's okay to treat powerless people like this, but as soon as the same sorts of methods are applied to famous, important, wealthy people, all of a sudden it's a scandal. Yeah, it's, it's, actually, it's, it's actually very, like, I, I, that, what you just said then, Jeff, really touches a nerve with me because that that people have that, yeah, compassion for people in power, powerful positions, but that's not extended to others is, is really an extraordinary situation. And I think, I mean, look, the way I've been thinking about it is, you know, governments, particularly in New South Wales and Victoria, have much more good news to share for once. And, you know, the lockdowns are ending and everything. And no doubt this is an incredibly inconvenient time for such inquiries to be in full swing. But on you know, on the other hand, allegations of corruptions have never been convenient for those involved. We, we Are we seeing quite the same attacks on IBAC as we are on ICAC? Uh, not, not as much. And I think that's probably because the federal government is much 
uh, more keen to attack a, a, um, a commission in New South Wales that's investigating a Liberal Premier um, and it's it's quite happy to see a Labor government in Victoria being under uh, in, in investigation. But as you say, the, 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 the claims about the timing seem to be particularly disingenuous because it's very difficult to think of a moment in which politicians would say, oh, OK, you know, it's fine. But <laughs> <laughs> Go for your life. <laughs> um, and then the other thing is, of course, that... The, the calls for an integrity commission in federal politics have been resounding for years now. And the reason why they've been resounding is that there are so many uh, examples of scandals that seem as if they re would require further investigation where nothing happens. So in Crikey recently, Bernard Keane came up with a long list of them, and I won't go through them in, in, in all detail. In, in detail, but he, you know, he, he drew attention to say Angus Taylor and uh, provision of public money to buy water licences for a company in which he'd been a director. Uh, Bridget McKenzie in the sports rights, Peter Dutton getting visas for the European or pairs, um, and on and on. This long list of these um, scandals that just appear in the media briefly and then disappear and are never investigated. Well, they do. And, and, and those names, Bridget McKenzie and Angus Taylor, are really in their headlines again with Barnaby Joyce because of you know accountability, I guess, around um, net zero emissions and, and that that sort of thing. So when these arise and if they're, if they're not looked at, then those people are clearly in positions of influence for, for policy um, in their day-to-day in their -day jobs. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, again, it, it, it does, your, does your head in even thinking about it. I mean, here we have Barnaby Joyce, the second most powerful person in the country, again on a salary of hundreds of thousands of, um, of, of dollars, and just casually saying that um, oh, the nationals haven't had time to look at um, to, to look at climate change policy. You know, this is something that's been debated for decades in this country, and he's acting as if like it's just been sprung on him the, the last the last minute. And, and again, if you or I in our jobs were so manifestly incompetent, there would question be <laughs> being asked, but. Here are these people who are at the highest levels of um, uh, of government, and and just act as if they're kind of doing us a favour by just turning up. You know, that's that's where my my mind went. It's it's not funny, but in, in you know in, sometimes you just need to laugh. I think because the, the obvious response to Joyce saying well, we haven't had enough time, it's really hard. It's it's sort of like well, you're not up to the job then. If you can't do it, then get out of the way and, and let someone else have a go because you've had you know what eight eight nine years in power. This issue has been around for a long time, and you're still struggling to come up with some deal that actually makes some sense. Um, on the, the Federal Integrity Commission, I mean, there's obviously, uh, you know, as, as you say, the government said they'd introduce one and they haven't yet. And, and as I understand that the, the model that they've put forward requires a, a, a reasonable suspicion of corruption amounting to a criminal offence before an inquiry can even begin. And that's a higher standard than is applied in, in IBAC, um, which is a, you know, slightly sort of lower standard than... Um, 
than ICAC, where it's sort of, you know, it can be easier to launch launch an investigation. Where do you think this, this is going? I mean, obviously, there's been models proposed by Helen Haynes, independents, and, and Labor has sort of pushed a, a, an integrity commission as well. Do you think we will get one that has robust powers to kind of weed out some of those elements of, of, of alleged corruption and improper doings that, um, that you've outlined? I think we're only going to get one if it's driven from below and mass public outrage. I think it's kind of clear that the the, the line that's been taken by the government is, is that they're going to obfuscate as much as they can, you know, delay and delay and delay, and then introduce something which is so weak as to be um, almost in, entirely superfluous. I mean, the point of these things is to draw things out into the public the public um, into the public realm to you know to 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 give the kind of um, disinfectant of publicity to these to these kind of affairs so that you know we can understand what it is that our politicians are, are, are doing because everybody knows if you have tremendously wealthy powerful people operating without accountability then corruption is almost certain to, to, to follow in one shape or another and you know we have a political class now that I think we've, we've discussed this previously that is increasingly given to to transitioning almost directly from a political career into a corporate career. Mm. Now, you know, without making any specific allegations uh, about that, you don't have to be Einstein to see the possibilities for corrupt conduct arising out of that. And no one ever seems to be held to account that, you know, these... Wealthy, powerful people go on to become wealthier and powerful, and you often get a sense they simply see a political career as a stepping stone to, you know, greater wealth and 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 greater power. And it's not like the stakes aren't high. I mean, we were talking about climate change. You know, we we are at a time when shit is pretty serious. <laughs> you, know, you, you know what I mean? Like mm. the, 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 the issues that the um, that Australia needs to grapple with now are so um, pressing that, I mean, you wouldn't have liked to say you could ever afford to have a culture of corruption, but at a time like today, a time like now, it's, it's even more dangerous because it's not simply that you have a political class enriching itself and looking after its own interests, but it, it means that nothing gets done about any of the issues that are affecting us. So, I mean, I, I think what we really need here now is public outrage about these things. It, it's a pretty low bar to say that, you know, um, that if you have integrity commissions at the state level, we should also have them at the federal level. And, you know, like these people say when it applies to anyone else, um, if you've got nothing to hide, then you won't mind answering questions. On that note, Jeff, um, you've got the last word and, and we'll catch you again probably in about a month's time. Excellent. Look forward to it. Thanks, guys. Jeff Bye. Sparrow um, on politicians and accountability. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. 
We've seen a lot of data through this pandemic and that data is telling us that when we open up from Friday that we will see a surge in COVID cases and in hospital admissions. Our healthcare workers have been absolutely incredible over the more than 18 months we've had COVID-19 in Australia and now we need them to keep going. To hear firsthand what we are asking of them, joining us is Emergency Specialist Dr Steve Parnas who works across a number of Melbourne hospitals and is a former Vice President of the Australian Medical Association. Good morning to you. Good morning, Carly and Dylan. And um, I mean, what was your reaction when you heard the end of lockdown was being brought forward to this Friday? Yes, mixed feelings. Um, at a personal level, I think it's going to take me a while to get used to living outside of lockdown. Um, I think like everyone in Melbourne, it's been pretty much a case of work, whether it's at the desk or, in my case, in hospital, uh, going to the supermarket, um, getting the essentials to my elderly parents. But that's about it. Um, And so getting used to opening up, seeing people again, um, going to shops, uh, visiting the places that are important to me, that's going to take uh, a few weeks, I think, to get used to. But then the other side of it was, what does this mean for the hospitals? And things are pretty hairy in hospitals at the moment. We've got a lot of very sick people with COVID, and it's very hard to find the space and keep things going so that we can treat all of the non-COVID things which keep coming. Absolutely. And, and so, so what does this kind of mean for you and, and the hospitals you work in in a tangible sense? I mean, do you change any of your plans uh, sort of approaching what, what you know, we think will be a rise in COVID cases and hospitalisations from Friday? Well, I, I think the best way to describe it is that we have been making a series of strategic withdrawals over a period of weeks now anyway. So you go back to the next line of defence. Uh, you'll see tents opening up out the front of hospitals. Uh, on the inside, the changes are just as big. Um, and the basic principle is that we need more surface area to treat COVID patients. So that's in emergency, that's in the wards, that's in intensive care units. And on top of that, we've got many, many hundreds of people with COVID who we are keeping an eye on at home as well in case they deteriorate. Um, The impact on staff is that people are being stretched further. Many of my nursing colleagues are having to work double shifts. Um, And people who normally work in other areas have to step into unfamiliar zones. So uh, surgeons have less elective surgery that they can do at the moment because we need the beds. Uh, Some of them are in emergency, for example, or on COVID wards. So they're out of their comfort zones and in areas outside of their immediate expertise. So we all have to cope with that. And on top of that, 18 months of uh, fatigue. You know, we've, we've all been thinking about COVID day and night since March last year. Yeah, it's a long time. It's a long time yeah. for everyone. And I think, you know, there, there does seem to me anyway a real sense of concern around um, the, the morale and the exhaustion levels in our health workforce. Um, yeah. Are those, you know, the concerns from the public, but are, is that feeling being passed through to, to our, our health workforce that there is the concern in, in the community, do you think, Steve? 
I think there's mixed feelings. Um, you know, the other day I uh, was discussing things with my colleagues at one of the hospitals and uh, the one that sticks in my mind is an anti-vaxxer who was harassing people out the front of the hospital and, you know, at one point they were trying to, trying to uh, assault some health workers coming to hospital for a night shift. And, and you remember that stuff. But, but what uh, we also know is that we just sort of check in on each other frequently. Uh, we know that people have good and bad days and we try and support them through it. There's a lot of encouraging words from, from you know, the managers, uh, requests that are made for little things like meals for those people who are working a double shift. Um, those things happen relatively quickly and when you feel uh, respected, um, uh, noted and, and, and it, uh, that makes a difference and it helps you get through the, the next shift. But also I think knowing that things are opening up and that we will get through this in the next few months, then th I think that gives us all a bit of, of courage to keep going and find a bit more energy. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I mean, in terms of I intensive care, I wonder if you can sort of step through, a, I suppose, what that's like at the moment and, and whether it's sort of, you know, will be functioning in, in the way that we have expected it to in the past or whether there'll be sort of different demands on the system and, and functionally any difference, um, you know, if and when there is a rise in cases and people uh, who will need to be um, put in intensive care. Yeah, well, intensive care is working in a way that I've never seen it before. It is uh, needing to expand outside of its normal uh, area in, in many hospitals, actually. So it's spread into an area called high dependency as well. And for many, they've gone into theatre recovery uh, because they need extra beds. Um, the number of medical and nursing staff in intensive care has had to expand. So uh, nurses, uh, and that's a highly trained specialty mm. being on ICU nurse, uh, many have had to be pulled in from other areas given refresher courses, um, uh, ratios have even had to be uh, put at risk of being compromised. You know, the one-to-one -one ratio for a one patient on a ventilator to a, a nurse, uh, that, that's not set in stone at the moment. Um, the, the, the way that people get looked after, planning for when someone can be either brought into intensive care or, or sent from ICU to the ward, uh, we've got to get maximum efficiency out of these beds. So if someone needs to be extubated, so taken off the machine, uh, we'd try and do that sooner rather than later because that frees up a bed for the next person who looks like their breathing is deteriorating. And we're doing things that I've only ever heard of before, like getting a person to lie on a number of pillows in a bit like the Superman position because it does make their breathing easier and improve their oxygen saturations as a temporising measure while we're waiting to put them onto other machines. So ICU is working in unprecedented ways, but they are doing incredible things to take the real sick patients out of the wards and out of emergency 
because the key word for us is flow. We've got to keep things moving through, otherwise you're going to see the sorts of ambulance queues that we saw outside the northern a few weeks ago. Yeah, I mean, look, you've painted an incredible picture. We're um, hearing from emergency specialist Dr Stephen Parnas and really checking in on what's happening inside our hospitals right now, what's life like for health workers at the moment, and of course opening up from Friday or starting to ease and, and, and open up. And I get... Um, you know, look, the decision's not ours to make, um, Steve, uh, but the decision has been made that we are starting to open up when at that 70% double vax rate, um, that double dose is expected to happen by Thursday, opening up on Friday. Is there a sense that that this is the right time or or when we hit that 80% double dose, is that going to be a bit more of a, a kind of a confident position to be in for our health workforce? Oh, we, we think that the, the impact of the vaccination is great and it is hard to find uh, a health worker that I work with, and I work with hundreds, who has anything other than uh, complete enthusiasm for the vaccination process. We know that this is necessary and we have to open up and we don't want to keep living like this, um, but frankly we haven't had the time to uh, study a lot of the, dis- the detail that... Uh, colleagues like Brett Sutton and the other epidemiology uh, specialists have had to do to model out how the health system will manage with this. But uh, we are doing everything we can to encourage, promote vaccination. What I, I would like everyone to understand is that uh, uh, this this goal of 80% of the population above 16, uh, that's not the finish line. Uh, we want this to keep going way above 90 and even get to 95 plus because that makes a difference overall to community safety uh, and it will make our burden that much lighter. Mm. And, I mean, we're asking health workers to shoulder an incredible burden through the pandemic, um, you know, some of which you've touched on, just painting a picture of exactly what uh, confronts you for the, the weeks and months ahead, but also what life has been like for the past 18 months or so. Um, friends of mine wow. who work in the health sector have talked about the, the sense of uh, the pandemic sort of revealing um, or exacerbating existing issues within the health system itself. And, I mean, I know you're obviously focused on, on the here and now and, and the weeks and months ahead. But but beyond that, are there things that we should really be looking at to ensure that our health system is much more robust and improved into the future and, and sort of going forward um, years? Oh, always, Dylan. Um, I, as you know, I used to be a leader of the AMA, both at state and federal level. And so one of my jobs has always been to ensure that the health system is as robust and effective as it could be. And prevention's always better than cure. Um, Hospitals and our health system operate at or near capacity, even in uh, normal times. Um, It is an insatiable beast for for, for funding, uh, but we can always do things better. Uh, I think that's why I spend so much time on public health. I think if you are um, uh, eating well, exercising well, looking after your mental health, you're much less likely to need the sort of expensive treatments that we have in our system. 
uh, we have to look at things like funding arrangements by governments, by private insurers, by individuals. Uh, we have to make sure that the principles that underpin our system, which is that your access to care is based on your need for care, not on how fat your wallet is, that's something that uh, I and many of my colleagues regard as sacrosanct. Uh, I think the other thing is we've got to make sure that our health workforce, which at the moment is stretched so far and wide, that that is nurtured because we have profound shortages of certain medical specialties and tens of thousands of nurses across the country. We need so many more. Um, uh, that, that's just for starters, mm. I think. Um, and then there's those questions about what treatments work. Um, we'd rather spend uh, money... Uh, that would benefit, let's say, tens of thousands of people rather than one individual, but we want to have the capacity to do that. Uh, and I think that uh, we want to have systems that encourage flow, not just capacity. Um, and so it's a really complex system. Uh, the other thing I would say is that we want to try and reduce the politicisation of healthcare. Um, I think it does best when there is common ground across both sides of politics at both state and federal level. Yeah, look, I think that's a good place to leave it because I, I did pay attention to some of the kind of funding argy-bargy at the political level, what was it, just last week and it's probably yeah. ongoing and I must say that my heart sank. It's like, um, you know, let's let's capitalise on the focus on health that we've had over the past 18 months and see where it goes. No doubt we'll touch base with you again. Thanks so much and all the best. Take care and, um, and thanks for sharing some of um, your insights with us this morning. That's a pleasure. Have a good day. You too. Thanks, Emergency specialist uh, Dr Stephen Parnison. Uh, Stephen works across a number of Melbourne hospitals and is a former vice president of the Australian a well, the AMA. Big shout out to anyone who's listening who's who's working in um, in the health sector as well. We very much appreciate all that you're doing for us at this time and, um, and yeah, best wishes for the, the weeks and months ahead as well. Triple. It's been a couple of months since the Taliban took control of Kabul, precipitating a, a swift and chaotic exit of the US and Australia from Afghanistan. At the time, Australia agreed to allocate 3,000 places from its existing humanitarian intake to people fleeing the country, and uh, that's a figure that many have said should rise. All the while, some of the most recent arrivals to Australia have been beginning new lives here, and they, of course, need all the help they can get. Humaira Machete is someone who's been been leading community efforts to offer support. She's part owner of the Afghan Gallery restaurant in Fitzroy, as well as being a vice president of the Afghan Australian Development Organisation and a long-term community liaison officer with the International Organisation for Migration. And she joins us now on the line. Hamera, thanks so much for speaking to us today on Triple R. Well, thank you very much. It's lovely to be on, on the show and, uh, I mean, the situation in Afghanistan dominated mainstream news headlines for a few weeks, but as is so often the case with these things, the cameras and news crews can move on pretty quickly. But all the while, of course, so many people have been facing a dangerous and uncertain future. What's been your role over the past couple of months in particular to sort of assist people from Afghanistan and particularly those who have made it to Australia? Yes, well, I, I just want to say, Dylan, that um, what happened in Afghanistan a couple of months ago, it's had such a tremendous 
intergenerational consequences for us to be living abroad for quite some time. So going back to square one, it's, it's been devastating. It's ravaged uh, the community all over the world. Uh, but um, luckily that some or some people have made it. We've got um, close to 4,000 Afghans who were evacuated uh, from the scenes that we saw on TV and have arrived to Australia. And more than 2,000 have been settled in Melbourne. Uh, they're living in different accommodations. A very small group have been housed, uh, but majority are living in the accommodation supported by the state government. And, I mean, what has the situation been like for those um, people that have come to Melbourne and, and finding housing and those sorts of things, Samira? Um, they've been assisted by the settlement groups, uh, by AIMS. Um, they are still, I think... Uh, they're just very lost. They're not sure exactly what's happening with them. A lot of them are illiterate, um, so they wouldn't be able to get online uh, to be able to go to realestate.com and uh, find uh, accommodations for them for themselves. Um, so they don't know the prerequisites. Another difficulty would be that a lot of real estates won't be able to house them because they don't have any past uh, history with uh, rental properties in, in Australia, in Melbourne. So that's another challenge, and we've been working with a couple of real estate agencies to see if they, they would be able to accommodate these people. Uh, so some of them would be having income. There's been a lot of proposals by the Afghan community and wider community uh, to employ some of these people, who, and these people are very keen uh, to be able to start a new life. For, the, for those of us that don't know sort of how that happens, I, I, I guess I have to say I'm, I'm surprised that private rental is, is, it sounds like it, I mean, obviously it's, it's important, but that, that's, the, that's the way it's going to happen, is it, for, for housing is, is going to be more in the private rental market than, than other options? Oh, yes, yes. There's no, um, I have not heard of any other options so far. Uh, so they have been, they were supposed to be in a temporary accommodation, mostly in Carlton, some in Visible, some in Werribee. Uh, but they are encouraged to go online and find their own accommodations. Of course, they all have case managers to try to assist. But it's been very overwhelming for everybody, like having to, over 200 uh, sorry, over 2,000 people in Melbourne. Um, and we've got around 300 children, babies and children. We've got uh, approximately 500 women and uh, 700 men amongst them. This is approximation. So everyone's uh, trying to chip in. The community has been fantastic. Besides the Afghan community, the wider community, the Fitzroy community, Collingwood, that I have been working with, um, everyone's giving a hand and we're trying to do everything and with all the contacts that we have uh, because they just, uh, especially the children, are extremely eager to school, to go to school. Um, at the moment, there's really not much for them to do and uh, being in lockdown has, um, you know, minimised all the possibilities for most of us. 
Yeah, absolutely. And the challenges are just immense, aren't they? And and together with, it, of course, all the social distancing and inability, even for you know those um, you know many members of the community, hopefully who who would want to lend a hand and, and help these people and even sort of get to know them, um, is just so much more challenging in the current environments uh, as well. You've been, as well as sort of all that work you've been doing, collecting donations. I understand through the Afghan Gallery Restaurant. How has that gone for you? And I guess is there still a really great need for any particular items for those who have arrived recently? Yes, because the shops have been closed so um, the refugees themselves couldn't do click and collect for themselves and also they wouldn't know how to, to go about that. But um, I, uh, Dylan, I, I just can't tell you how overwhelming it has been with the support. Uh, so I basically had ads happening in social media and I was just bombarded with a lot of items, a lot of goodies, a lot of new stuff uh, that uh, the community has helped. So some people that were not able to make the distance, they would bring it, you know, when they were allowed to go five kilometers, they would go to the five kilometers, hand it over to another family or friend, and then they would take it for another five kilometers until they reached um, the Afghan gallery. So the Afghan gallery basically became a warehouse, (laughs) and we've had uh, great community people and people that work with our NGO, Afghan Australian Developing Organization. Organization. People in the community like Dave, who's running, who based, who is running a project in Takuma refugee camps, um, Kenya, and he's been doing that for three years, including preschool, uh, opening a preschool for 180 refugees. Um, and now, we just recently, he has uh, partnered with Three for All Foundation in Collingwood. So he had basically nothing to do with Afghans. And all of a sudden, he just wanted to do a drop, and we met, and it's, it's been great. It's been them, it's been CWA, um, the uh, Collingwood Women's Association, the local residents, and now we've got um, Melissa. Uh, Maisel's an Australian soccer goalkeeper, you you would know, mm. uh, who plays for the Australian Women's League in Melbourne. Uh, she's been on board. There's been a lot of people that have been coming in, sorting out items with us, delivering them, uh, looking, you know, talking to, to the Afghan community. We also have the Afghan girls national soccer team in Melbourne who are, we've been very um, working closely with them trying to get them to be settled trying to get them to be involved with the um, Australian um, team because they're just very very keen to get back on the ground have a kick so we're working very closely with them there are a lot of challenges but together as a community, we will make it happen. Yeah, and I mean, look, as you um, really give us some more detail of the, yeah, the community rallying here in Melbourne, but also um, really how how wonderful it is to have um, new Afghan um, residents of our city as well. And I understand there is a, a group of healthcare and welfare providers that are involved um, and, you know, hotel quarantine, vaccines, health checks, uh, also um, people who are um, familiar with working with people who have gone through a lot and, and, and carry trauma. What what happens? Is that just 
Do, is that in place just for now or what happens, do you know, over time, Hamira, um, with, with the kinds of supports that are in place for, for the 2,000 people that you, you've, you've told us have, have arrived here in Victoria? Um, the, the, the support will continue. Well, living here over the years and working with the community uh, for a very long time, the, the supports will continue. It's, uh, I think it's more difficult one while they're all together in one area. It's very difficult to attend to them. But I think once they are housed um, and they've gone to the, you know, wherever they find accommodation, then there will be, we are pushing for a lot of uh, support from the councils to be involved besides uh, community health centres. So there's going to be probably um, the foundation house who would be definitely uh, supporting the, this, uh, the community because they are extremely traumatised with the whole situation. A lot of them believe that they are here for a short time, everything's going to Everything's going to be great in Afghanistan again, and there's going to be a fall of the Taliban, and people would be going back. So they, they're basically living a dream. They, they really, they, everything is very uncertain at the moment, but slowly I'm sure that they would, the support would continue. Yeah, we're speaking with Hamera Machete, who wears a number of hats. Uh, she's vice president of the Afghan Australian Development Organisation, a community liaison officer with the International Organisation for Migration, and also one of the owners of Afghan Gallery Restaurant, which has been doing a whole lot of work um, to warehouse goods for new um, arrivals from Afghanistan over the past couple of months. And I mean, obviously, the situation, uh, you know, is is not good in Afghanistan, and and there's sort of uh, no, no, you know, no prospect. Of, of much change necessarily, um, you know, in the near future. Uh, are you still sort of in touch with people over there or the people that you're, um, you're, you're helping at the moment? Uh, I mean, is there a prospect of any more arrivals? We know that the cap was, um, you know, initially set at 3,000 and, and many have said that wasn't quite enough. Um, how's that kind of looking from where you sit? Uh, well, the situation in Afghanistan is uh, quite—it's uh, it's very, very hard. Um, um, I believe there's going to be another influx, probably as not as many as 4,000, but there will be another group arriving possibly um, sometime in January. Uh, we are pushing for the government to accept more, but uh, Dylan, it's, it's really difficult. We've got a population of 36 million people in Afghanistan. So it's really hard to be able to, you can't take everyone out. But a lot of our push from the Afghan Developing Organization has been Australian, sorry, Afghan Australian Developing Organization to bring more stability within Afghanistan uh, to, to hold to hold NATO accountable, the coalition accountable about what's happened and how people have been abandoned. There were three years of um, discussions with the Taliban, peace talks with the Taliban. So Taliban didn't appear out of nowhere. So we need to hold the coalition accountable for what's happening in Afghanistan and bring bring safety and stability in Afghanistan. So that's what our focus is. Like, even if we bring 20, 25,000 people to Australia, what's going to happen to the remaining, say, for example, 35 million left behind? 
Yeah, they, that's a huge question, and yeah, yeah, one one that we need to contend to as as an international exactly. community. That's for sure. And I wonder, yeah. um, because you know, the situation has has changed so radically and deteriorated in Afghanistan. We know that. Um, what about those um, mostly men, but those Afghans who have been in immigration detention in Australia for for some years? Um, do you have a, a sense of what's happening in that with their situation? Yeah, nothing is happening. I'm very close, uh, in close contact with many of them. Um, but apparently they have not heard from the government and there seems to be nothing being done about it. And I don't think Liberal would be doing anything about it. Basically, the, they, they believe that if they accept people on temporary visas, then uh, more boats would be coming to Melbourne. Yeah, I mean, we, we've heard that sort yeah. of rhetoric quite a few times over the years, haven't we? Yeah, that's um, that's that's yeah. that's startling. And um, just lastly, Hamara, uh, there, there may be people listening who you know might not have known exactly how they might be able to lend a hand, but would very much want to. And it's great to hear there has been a, a lot of community support over the past months. What is the best way for people to support those who have arrived, um, you know, both now and, and going forward? Well. Um, the Afghans that I've been talking to, the people that have arrived, um, they just want to thrive. They want to develop. They want to be part of the community. They want to prosper. They want to shine and show the signs that they they can be they can they can assist their fellow Australians to develop the country even further. I think uh, well the sad thing is that well the good thing is that we are reopening for business again, and um, uh, so basically Afghan Gallery wouldn't be able to accept any more donations at this time. I'm trying to find another probably another space for people to be able to continue their support. Um, they've been extremely generous. Um, I think um, uh, just, uh, you know, just to action with what's happening in Afghanistan, to bring peace and stability, uh, to stop accepting black and white narratives, get facts right, sharpen yourselves, listen and focus to the realities of what's happening. Listen to the Afghan civilians that we have here, support them, stand by them, talk to them. More than anything, they want a friend next to them at the moment. Emotionally, they are also down. They need the support of our Australian community. We need to apply pressure politically, uh, not to turn a blind eye on Afghanistan anymore. Um, aid, aid the children and the adults who are illiterate, basically, in education. Maybe give some time, an hour of your of your week to be able to support. They are going to become your neighbours to understand the situation they've been they've gone through. Majority of them are young. A majority of these people that have arrived, mostly under the age of, age of forty, which means they have lived they were born, grew up in war in a war zone country. So they would need a lot of um, support emotionally. Yeah. 
Well, um, lots of tangible things people can do there. You know, uh, thanks yeah. for, for all the work you're doing, and um, and best of luck with the restaurant reopening as well. Um, yeah, hopefully, you can you. start to get some customers in there, but but also hope that that yeah. there's still you know another location for those donations to be warehoused and get out thank to the people you. who need them. It's um, been a pleasure having you on Triple R today. Thanks so much. Yeah, thank you, thank you so much, Dylan. Can I just say that our the the girls soccer, national soccer girls soccer group that have arrived, they would need a lot of support from the soccer league. So I re, I'm really, really eager to hear, hear from many of them. Yeah, if anyone out there listening yeah. who is involved in, in soccer football, then um, then yeah, get in touch and, and we can uh, get your details and pass them on. Thanks so much, Hamara. Really appreciate Thank it. Thank you so much. Thank you, Helen. Hamara Meshedi there, Vice President of the Afghan Australian Development Association, also works with the International Organisation for Migration and is one of the owners of the Afghan Gallery Restaurant talking about all the efforts um, that are being taken to support those recent Afghan arrivals in Melbourne. And um, it seems like there's a lot going on, but such more that needs to happen into the future as well. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoyed the show, and if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website.